Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. Erev Tov, everyone. This is Rabbi Micah Greenstein coming to you live from Temple Israel in Memphis on this very important evening. We always say Erev Tov, good evening, but this evening is Erev Yom HaShoah, the evening of commemorating the Holocaust. And I'd like us to begin tonight in remembrance of the Shoah, in silence and with a prayer as we prepare to remember. And here's my prayer. We stand with the families of Rocky Miller, and all those survivors offering our gratitude and promising never to forget. We pledge to tell the stories of courage as Rucky will tonight and the tales of the valiant heart. In quiet reverence, we hold our people's fear and pain and sacrifice. May their memory not only be an eternal blessing, but may their memory also be a precious legacy. And let us say, Amen. My dear friends, (coughs) Dr. Rucky Miller is a retired medical doctor and writer And in addition to her medical qualifications, she has also studied creative writing, holds master's degrees in both journalism and medical journalism as a general practitioner. She's the author of a series of widely used textbooks in a field known as aesthetics education. And she's published published numerous short stories and articles. I've asked her to join us tonight because she is also the author of Not Just a Survivor, A Portrait of My Mother, the memoir of her mother's story. The book is both a chilling narrative of an exceptional woman's life journey and a personal reflection on being the child of a Shoah survivor. Drawing on her mother's stories and lots more written information. The book delivers a harrowing personal insight, often in her mother's own words, into life in the Kovno ghetto and believe it or not, the five concentration camps in which she was incarcerated. But here's the important Nechemta. The book is also the Jewish response to all tragedy, I think, even unimagined tragedy. Because like Viktor Frankl, Rucky's mom radiates life. And she remains somehow an amazingly optimistic woman who somehow rose above her horrendous experiences and emerged with her humanity intact. She went on to dedicate her life to ensuring that the stories of the Holocaust are perpetuated and the heroism of the survivors are honored 
And Rucky, the daughter we'll hear from tonight, is her witness. Originally from South Africa, from Durban, Rucky lives in Brisbane, Australia, but she spends much of her time traveling to Florida where her two granddaughters live. And in fact, today is her six-year-old granddaughter's birthday. So happy birthday, talk about life after the darkness we are addressing tonight. Uh, when not traveling, I just have to share this, Rucky. I, I found out uh, some of your other creative pursuits, uh, painting, toy making, and like her mother, baking up a storm in the kitchen. So Rucky, welcome to Memphis. We can't wait to have you here in person someday, but we are grateful that you are with us on this sacred date in Jewish time, Erev Yom HaShoah. Ruchah we're so honored that you're with us tonight. Thank you so much. Good evening, everybody. For as long as I can remember, the Holocaust has loomed large in my life. Every year, I've attended the annual Yom HaShoah commemoration. First, as a bewildered child, hearing my mother addressing thousands of mourners in a commemoration service in Johannesburg, in Yiddish, not understanding the words, but absorbing the raw emotion of that evocative language directly into my soul. As an adult in a different country, I still attend these services, although I have no need to be reminded of what happened. I carry the memory of this time in each of my cells as clearly as if it were imprinted in my DNA. So it's a special honor for me to have this opportunity, Erev Yom HaShoah, to speak to you. Thank you. I've related my mother's testimony many times, and each time I repeat her story, I'm reminded anew of how important it is to keep this memory alive and to perpetuate the universal messages that anti-Semitism, racism, and discrimination should not be allowed to flourish unchecked in any form, in any place, at any time. Now, more than ever, with world peace facing such an uncertain future, I believe it's essential to repeat our message again and again until it becomes a mantra for each and every one of us, passed on from generation to generation. In this way, we can ensure that the Holocaust history will never be rewritten by those who say it never happened and the actions of its perpetrators will never be forgotten. I'm here today to talk to you about a remarkable woman, somebody whose normal life was totally decimated for the five years between the 22nd of June, 1941, when she was incarcerated, first in the Kovna ghetto, and then in five concentration camps in Estonia and Germany, until she was liberated on the 15th of April, 1945 from Bergen-Belsen. But what I want to focus on today is not the horror of that time, nor the terrible devastation and loss that she suffered, but the bravery, humanity, and optimism that helped her to survive and allowed her to emerge from that dark period as a whole accomplished exemplary human being. Somebody who went on to dedicate her life to perpetuating the memory of the Holocaust, to educating everybody she could, and to ensure the lessons of that time would not be forgotten. She was an incredible person who I was privileged to have as my mother. Let me tell you a little about myself. My name is Rohi Miller. I was born in South Africa and I emigrated to Australia in 1991, where I live with my husband. Tonight, I'm talking to you from Florida, where I'm visiting my daughter and her husband and my two gorgeous grandchildren, granddaughters. I also have a married son who lives in Australia. 
I'm a retired medical doctor and I have an additional degree in journalism. And I've recently published a book, Not Just a Survivor, a portrait of my mother, which is a memoir about her life. Let me tell you a little about my mother. My mother, Leah, was born in Lithuania in 1914. From the outset, by all accounts, she was special. She was exceptionally smart, and she studied at the University of Kovna at a time when many women didn't complete high school. She had a degree in natural sciences, and she taught at a Hebrew high school. My mother was fluent in at least seven languages, and she could communicate in many others. She was learned, gregarious, and a loving family member. This is a family photo of my mum as a teenager with her parents and her younger siblings, a sister, Gitta, and a brother, Motel. They lived in Malat, which was a small town in Lithuania where her parents had a bakery and a restaurant. She also had an older brother, Jaime, who migrated to South Africa in 1926. In 1937, she married Moses Klompus, and a year later, they had a son, Michael. They lived a relatively normal family life in Kovna, which was the capital of Lithuania. In 1940, Lithuania was invaded by Russia, and there was a non-aggression pact signed between Russia and Germany. As a result of this document, the Lithuanian jury had a false sense of security, despite the impact that Germany was having in other parts of Europe. And then, on the 22nd of June 1941, everything changed. Germany invaded Lithuania. Her words were, you can imagine, we were sitting peacefully on a Sunday, sunny Sunday morning in June, because Russia and Germany have got a non-aggression pact and Lithuania is ruled by Russia, we think we are quite safe. But then we see at about 12 o'clock in the morning, German planes attacking Kovna. Bombs were all the time just booming. That is all we heard. And from that very minute, we could already not get out into the street because we were straight away arrested or taken away to be shot. From this moment, all the Jews in Lithuania ceased to be normal members of the country where they had been born, where they had lived and worked and identified as citizens. Many of them were murdered by their Lithuanian neighbors and the German forces in the first few days of occupation. Those who survived this initial onslaught were forced into the ghetto where every liberty was curtailed. Despite this, my mother and her husband and child and her mother-in-law remained in the ghetto as a family for 16 months and they counted themselves lucky. They had work, they were together. Against all odds, they survived selections, hunger, brutality. And then in October 1942, the Nazi authorities issued a demand for 2,000 men from the ghetto to be sent to Estonia. The Judenrad provided a list and my mother's husband's name was on it. There was an offer for the men's families to go with them. If they agreed, they were promised that they could continue to live together. After much agonizing, they decided to go to Estonia together as a family but it was a cruel Nazi hoax. As soon as they reached the station, the family was separated. My mother was sent to one concentration camp in Estonia, her husband to another, and her not quite five-year-old son and his grandmother were sent to Auschwitz, and my mother never saw them again. My mother spent almost three years in five different concentration camps. These were Vivara, Erida, and Lagedi, which were all in Estonia. And then via transfer to Stutthof in Germany, she went to a camp 
in Ochsenzoll, which was an offshoot of the infamous women's camp Ravensbrück, close to Hamburg, and finally to Bergen-Belsen. She was liberated on the 15th of April 1945 in Bergen-Belsen by the Allied forces. These details are described in this document that I found, entitled The Story of My Life. It is dated the 14th of February 1946, written 10 months after liberation while she was living and working in Bergen-Belsen Displaced Persons Camp. And it just highlights the key components of her life up to this point in time. It's interesting that she ends off saying, um, I was liberated on the 15th of April by British Army and I have since existed as a displaced person. She doesn't talk about living, she talks about existing. The first concentration camp she was sent to was Vivera in Estonia. After the initial devastation of being separated from her family, and the incredible dehumanization and humiliation that she endured, her resilience emerged and she began to hone her amazing coping skills. My mother explained to me that survival was due mostly to chance. She estimated that chance accounted for perhaps 90% of survival, but the other 10%, what you did with the chance you were given was up to you. She influenced that 10% with her innate strengths and she used these skills to help others to survive as well. She was brave, she was not afraid to confront authority and her ability to converse with her captors in their language gave her a subliminal advantage. In Vivara, she worked in the barracks, having to clean the squalid living quarters of 100 women who shared 20 bunks. And they were locked in overnight with no toilet facilities. Every morning, the kappa would come to collect 60 or 70 of the women from the barracks for forced labor, frequently beating them when they wouldn't comply. My mother couldn't stand the brutality and she quickly devised a plan. She approached him and she offered to organize work groups for him on condition that he wouldn't assault the women. Then she got the women to agree to a roster system that she set up, enabling the very young and the very old not to go out to work and ensuring that the others took turns to have a day off. And it worked. There was a compliant workforce. The most vulnerable remained in the barracks and recuperated. And the camp leader took note of her skills and she somehow urged his grudging respect. Um, and this enabled her to get a little bargaining power. Step by step, she succeeded in taking some control of an untenable situation, and she made it a little better for everyone. The women who remained in the barracks each day helped her with the cleaning, but she managed to establish a relationship with the kitchen staff so she could access coal and wood and the barracks was a little warmer when the women returned from work and there was always hot water to drink. Early on, my mother recognized the importance of connectedness. She instinctively knew that friendship and belonging helped to overcome the dehumanization the Nazis sought to perpetrate. During her time in the camps, she gathered around her a group of about 10 younger women who became her friends. She talked of them as her girls or her adopted daughters. They looked out for each other. They made sacrifices for each other and they survived together. This is a photograph of my mother and her adopted daughters, which was taken at Bergen-Belsen about 10 months after liberation and they all managed to survive together. And this photo, is an incredible gift that they made for her. It's a tiny little handmade book. Each page is a handwritten tribute to her, presented to her by her daughters for her birthday on the 5th of July, 1945, three months after liberation. The cover of the book 
is made from a Canadian Air Force uniform. The inside cover is adorned with pressed and fabric flowers. This is amazing evidence of the role she played in their lives. At this point, I'd like to tell you three short stories, three incidents that illustrate this incredible relationship. One of her girls was a teenager, a very small, frail little girl, and she struggled to make it through the 24 hours between one meager meal and the next. As the day wore on, she would faint from hunger. Now, any evidence of weakness was almost certain to lead to extermination. If her fainting were ever observed by a blitzwoman or another Nazi official, she would almost certainly have been sent to Auschwitz. My mum knew this, and so she devised a plan to save her. She gathered the others in the group and arranged for each of them to retain a little of their daily ration of bread, which was one slice of bread every 24 hours. <clears throat> and they kept a small piece aside in order to give to the girl during the course of the day and prevent her from fainting. Can you imagine the selflessness for someone who received watery soup and one-tenth of a loaf of bread as their only sustenance every day to give some of it away? It was a huge sacrifice. But my mum asked it of them and they all complied. And because of this amazing generosity, this girl survived. The second story that illustrates the same incredible generosity occurred when they were transferred to Stutthof, which was a staging point before they were moved to a new concentration camp near Hamburg. They noticed a young girl from another camp had been pulled aside and was waiting for transport to extermination. There was a small group um, and this young girl was amongst them. And my mum and her group decided to try to save her. This is her description. She said, so we, the Kovner girls, got together. What were we going to do about this child? We couldn't simply let her die. A Russian lady was in charge of watching the selected group of doomed inmates. She was looking after them until they were to be deported. We still had something hidden, a chain, a watch, some money, someone had a ring, and we decided to put together a parcel. I approached this woman, I could speak Russian, and I told her what we would give her if she would take out this young girl for us. And she did. She brought me that little girl and I paid with what we had for her. We took the child back to the barrack where we were and she became one of our girls. Chayla was her name. She wasn't so little, she was 14, but she looked like 10. And until the end of the camps, she remained with me and became my adopted daughter. And the end of that story is that last year, I was contacted by Chayla's daughter who lives in New York, and we have had a communication since then. The third story shows the reciprocal nature of their relationship. This is the story where my mother's life was saved by the actions of her adopted daughters. After a short time in Vivera, she became ill with typhus and she was sent to the so-called medical facility. This in itself was a miracle, since most inmates of the camps who became ill were simply sent to Auschwitz. But she'd earned the respect of the Nazi camp leader and he ordered that she at least be given the opportunity to recover. There was no medical care, but there was a visit every day from a Jewish doctor and a nurse. Most people died in that facility, but my mother somehow recovered. Before she was well enough to leave this facility, however, the camp was closed to avoid the approaching Russian army. The staff and occupants were ordered to move to a new camp, and the patients in the medical facility, including my mother, were wrapped in their thin blankets and thrown outside onto the snow and left to die. But her friends hadn't forgotten her. At great personal risk, two of them came to find her, bringing clothes with them. They dressed her and 
carrying her between them, they dragged her to the place where the rest of the camp had been assembled for transfer to a new location. They slipped her into the line with the healthy inmates, supporting her as they marched towards the train. One of her friends, a nurse, pushed her unseen into a train carriage filled with medical equipment and locked her in. And against all odds, thanks to her, to their actions, she survived. Finally, after two more concentration camps, my mum landed in Bergen-Belsen. After five hellish weeks there, on the 15th of April, 1945, Bergen-Belsen was liberated by the Allied forces. After liberation, she remained in Bergen-Belsen displaced persons camp for almost a year, working first as secretary to the commanding officer of Bergen-Belsen, and later establishing and running a kosher kitchen with a few of her adopted daughters for about 300 women who remained there who wanted to eat kosher food. There was relative security in the displaced persons camp. My mother had around her her support network, but she needed to start her life again. The transition was extremely difficult. Only when the inmates were free did the true scope of their loss become real. She had lost everyone and everything. Her parents, her younger brother and sister, her husband, her child, her mother-in-law, her friends, her home, her possessions. But she never ever lost the essence of who she was and she retained her humanity and her morality throughout that time, and she survived. And then she went on to rebuild her life and live it to the full with an amazing sense of optimism and determination. She, a short time after leaving Bergen-Belsen, she began the long journey to South Africa where her brother was living. Shortly after arriving in South Africa, after an initial physical and mental breakdown where she spent three months in hospital, her resilience once again resurfaced. She enrolled for university. She got a job and she rented an apartment on her own. And then she met my dad, who she married in April 1948 two years after arriving in South Africa. She studied. She went back to university, attaining four more degrees over her lifetime. And the last degree was a PhD in Holocaust literature at the age of 73. She had two daughters, my sister and myself. And in time, she had five adored grandchildren whose lives she influenced profoundly. She emigrated to Australia in 1990, and she lived a full life in Sydney until she passed away in the year 2000 at the age of 86. Despite building a new life for herself, her fundamental identity remained that of a survivor. She justified her survival and determination to live by a self-imposed obligation to share her experiences with everyone. And this remained the central force in her life. After my mother passed away in 2000, I found in her apartment a remarkable collection of items, wonderful and important evidence of her incredible life. There were amazing documents from the time of her liberation from Bergen-Belsen newspaper articles of her university achievements, photographs, writings, lecture notes, audio and video interviews. She was an avid educator, taking every opportunity to talk about the Holocaust to whoever would listen. She gave countless interviews. She was a guide at the Holocaust museums in South Africa and in Australia. And she was a living historian in numerous school programs. She immersed herself in Holocaust studies, trying to make logical sense of this inexplicable trauma. 
She truly embodied the Holocaust experience physically, emotionally, and academically. My mother had always spoken openly about her experiences. And as her children, we were always aware of her loss of her past. We absorbed her experiences through all our senses into the core of our beings. Her past, our heritage, was always chillingly there. But it was only six years ago, 15 years after her death, that I began to really listen to the many interviews she had given over her life and read the documents that related not only to her Holocaust experiences, but also her active involvement in Holocaust education for the remainder of her life. And only then did I truly appreciate how exceptional she was. I became awestruck by her resilience, by her incredible belief in what was important, stunned by her sense of morality that dictated her decision-making and her tenacity to ensure that this dark chapter in history would never be rewritten by Holocaust denialists. And as I worked through her writings and I listened to her words, the essence of my mother crystallized. And her mission to perpetuate the memory of those who couldn't tell their stories became my mission too. And so the book, The Story of My Mother's Amazing Life and Passion, was born. I guess by now you're starting to get a sense of the person my mother was. I could go on for hours telling you of her amazing attributes of her bravery and courage, her loyalty, her unique coping skills, her empathy towards other people, her incredible sense of self, a stubborn determination to live against all odds, but always in the context of morality, never at the cost of another inmate, and her amazing pragmatism and her enduring optimism. But we have run out of time because I really want to have an opportunity to answer any questions that you may have. So let me leave you with a quote that depicts in my eyes, the hero that my mother was, the amazing woman who was not just a survivor, but so much more. She said, every hour of our life to live an extra hour under those circumstances, this was courage, this was heroism. We couldn't do anything to our murderers, to our enemies, but at least we tried to defy them by trying to want to live. Thank you. Incredible, Roche Araki. Thank you so much. I know those in our Temple Israel University program tonight have heard story after story, but your mom's was... Um, beyond memorable and extraordinary. It's remarkable to me how we're all still learning <laughs> from, it's like Elie Wiesel uh, asked a rhetorical question, why did God create human beings? And he answered, because God loves stories. And I had no idea about your mother. Um, you evoke so many questions, I'm sure, by those attending this, whether your faces are seen or your voices are heard. And Rucky and I were talking before this program how much she enjoys this part of the hour. So please uh, ask any question to Rucky now. You, uh, we can unmute, Lynn. Thank you. I'll, I'll enable people to unmute as you wish. Dr. Miller, my name is Nancy Sayer. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for sharing these intimate stories about your mother with us. You know, in your story and your mother's story is not just about being a Jew and about being a Holocaust survivor. It, it embodies so much more about what a woman she was, how wonderful she was to share these stories with you so that you're able to 
carry the torch, so to speak, and you know, carry her memory on. So thank you, just thank you. Thank you so much for sharing such an intimate story with us. Thank you for for listening. It's it's my greatest pleasure to be able to tell her story. Yes. When I visited uh, South Africa and went to Robben Island to see the prison where Nelson Mandela was, we we had a speaker who described his imprisonment and torture. And he told the story, I understand, a couple of times every day, a couple of times a week, and that was a job. And, and we asked him, how, how can he do it? Because it conjured up so emotion. And he said he had no, no choice. He had to bear witness. And so I'm asking you, following up on, on Nancy's question, question, this has got to be emotionally draining for you to share this over it, and over. It, it took me a long time to be able to do it. But once I wrote the book and I, I realized how really important it was to perpetuate her story. Um, and I, I had watched her telling her story and I used to be a soggy mess who would cry every time I talked about her. And I learned that writing the book gave me the capacity to talk about her objectively or subjectively, but it gave me, it gave me the mission to, to talk because if I don't bring her story out, it will get lost. And so I can hide behind the emotion or I can make a pact to spread her word. Um, and I've chosen to do that. And it's actually freed me because I now can go to schools and I share the story with, with many young students and we use her story as a springboard um, for how people can become upstanders instead of bystanders. And I couldn't do any of that before. So yes, it is an emotional task, but it gives me great pleasure um, because it's empowered me to do something that was really important. And the beautiful thing is that my daughter does the same thing. She was equally touched by, by their boba. And so she's now involved in promoting my mom's story as well and it you know if we don't talk about this testimony it will get lost rocky i want to uh, thank you for that i, I want to dig deep into a facet of uh your mother's life and get your reaction to it and maybe even i see some psychologists and others um, attending this session on this Erev Yom HaShoah. Before I became a rabbi, when I was in Boston um, in graduate school in government and public policy, I studied with Elie Wiesel at uh, Boston University. I attended his seminar at night and I was shocked to learn when asked not long before he died, um, what gets us through our worst times? He was asked that question. Uh, he didn't answer faith. He didn't answer God. He didn't even say that hope gets us through our worst times. Friendship, he said, is what gets us through our worst times. He said, without a doubt, it's friendship. He said, a friend will see you through it all, through the abyss and through the magic too. He said, with friendship, no matter what, there's playfulness, no matter what your age, it's a sacred balance that doesn't deplete you. Um, that true friends are guardian angels. And um, I, I was just captivated by your mom's relationship with her girls and, and how that rings true. And um, someone who may be more of an introvert, maybe, um, I, I, the 10% who's, 
who used their coping skills and adaptability. We, we know 90% of it was mazel and chance. I'm just fascinated by that facet to the story and was surprised myself to hear that Elie Wiesel um, found his refuge in what your mother seemed to have too, in friendship. Um, could you comment on that perhaps? I think it was such a big part um, of her identity. I think the fact that, you know, for me, the concentration camps were a collection of Jews. But my mom explained to me that they were so different. They didn't often speak the same language. They might have been a collection of Jews, but they were actually totally disparate groups of people. And they, they had no commonality. They often were in different, from different countries, educated differently, not educated, no common language. So by collecting around her, her group of girls who, who cared for each other, but who had so much commonality, they all spoke Hebrew, they'd all been to university together or to school together. They all came from Kovna. And so they, they kept reiterating again and again that they had a history, they had a background, they had a past, and they had a future. And I think it was this sense of cohesiveness, because what Hitler was trying to do was denude them of everything except a number. And this did exactly the reverse. It made them into a group of people who cared about each other. And often, you know, people would say, why did, why did the, the Jewish people not um, run away? Why didn't they not revolt? And my mom explained to me again and again that what you did impacted on everybody around you. If you escaped, they shot the community. If you ran away, they went after your friends and your family. And so you as a person didn't have greater value than the value of the group. And I think this, this made a huge difference to them because you you stopped worrying about yourself and you worried about your group and all those girls in her group all survived in fact when my sister got married in israel in 1970 the great majority of them were there and there's this beautiful photo of my mother and her girls at her daughter's wedding which is, you know, incredible when you think about it. What you're saying is so compelling. It's a counterpoint to the survival of the fittest argument. You know, you see some of these Shoah survivors who said, you know, I was turned into this animal to survive, whether it was the Kapos or others who were given. And, and it's a very uh, beautiful counter story to the survival of the fittest that these friends for life yeah. got each other through it. it, it it's, a, it's a very different um, story than many we've heard, I think, at least. Uh, do others agree? I mean, what you're saying makes sense, but it's beautiful to hear that it really happened. <laughs> it happened. Okay, others, please. Uh, Bess, go right ahead. Bess? Bess, you just have to unmute. I'm sorry. That seems to be the operative word throughout COVID. Unmute. Okay. Um, okay. Um, this is kind of, this is my story. And I really have never brought my... Bess, I'm sorry. Sometimes you're, you're going in and out with me. Now, you, now you're unmuted and just don't touch any. Up, oh, you're muted again. Now you're unmuted. Go. Okay. My father left for Europe when I was three years of age and uh, never came back. And Hitler was picking people up about two or three years later. We never heard from him again. And my family, uh, 
because I was too young. I, I didn't know anything that was happening. They did a search. They tried and tried and tried to find out what what became of him. And uh, the story came. Bess, you, ju- you muted just when you said the story became, if you uh, were that part. I know. It's too, what the part is, is there any way in the world or any organization in this world that could give me a clue? I'm the last one left in my family, and I never found out what happened to him. People are telling us that he was taken to a concentration camp. We have no idea where. His homeland was Yugoslavia, Monastir, Yugoslavia at that time. And I, I've been searching since my my family all passed away. I guess most of the records are in Yad Vashem in Israel. Have you approached them at all? One year, they did send people from Israel to Memphis, Tennessee, to find. Oh, my God. We're done. It looks like. No, no, no. Dr. Miller is is suggesting that you reach out to Yad Vashem and you don't have to go to Israel to do that. There's a way to reach them. Uh, I've been to Israel and I have tried. I couldn't find anybody. So, okay. Thank you for answering. I don't know what happened here, but uh, I'm out of the picture now. Okay. We hope you find your father's um, story. Yeah. Um. I believe there's a question in the chat there. Thank you, Max. I guess um, in, in if, if you could read the question, question aloud for those who may not be seeing it. The, the question is, what actions do you think your mom would encourage Jews to take regarding the barbaric conditions created by the Russians in the Ukraine? I think as with all forms of of racism, I guess, but this is more than this. This is this is war, I suppose. It, it's it's to I think she would deal with problems by on an individual basis. So she adhered to the principle of do whatever you can as an individual do whatever is important as an individual, spread whatever important news you can as an individual, take care of the people around you. Because I don't think one can, in a, in a war situation, I don't think one can deal with things en masse. You have to deal with, with the small things that you can do. You have to treat the people around you as well as you can. Look after whoever you can. I imagine. Thank you for that. Ben, you have a question. Please ask. Unmute. Um, yeah. Um, I first off just wanted to say um, this has impacted me deeply. Uh, every every um, Shoah survivor story is, is so important to hear. And um, so I just, I just wanted to say that. Um, the uh, my question is, because you you mentioned before how how your mother made it her her obligation to to share this um, and and to share her experiences. Um, were there any that you recall that were you 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 noticed were deeply impactful for for those to hear? Uh, I'm not sure if I'm explaining my my question, but. What was the most effective way that you saw how she impacted people? Does that make sense? Like how, yeah. what, what did she do that was so, that you can see real change um, in perspectives and um, impact? I think it was just to tell her testimony. Um, you know, many Holocaust survivors found it extremely difficult to speak 
about the Holocaust. There were two ways of dealing with the Holocaust. Some people pretended it didn't happen. They or they they never told about it. Um, I have friends whose parents were Holocaust survivors who never told them that they'd had a previous family. Um, and for many people, that was just too painful to deal with. My mum believed she had survived in order to tell people about what happened. That was her justification of why other people had died and she had survived. She she had to find a reason why she had survived and that was her reason and so by being herself by telling people what had happened she impacted on people and she never let an opportunity go past you know if you happen to be catching a train with my mom um her very first words would have been oh hi i'm leah i'm a holocaust survivor and that was just how she dealt with the world she saw everything in terms of her Holocaust survival. If she if she had a backache, it was because a Nazi had kicked her in the back and broken her vertebra, and she expressed that. So because that became her persona, she impacted on absolutely everybody. And my mum's main coping skills with life was that she studied. She went back to university and studied because by studying, she could actually immerse herself in something other than the Holocaust until she got to 73 and did a PhD in Holocaust literature, which was crazy. But, you know, until then, she had done all sorts of other things to take her, take her away from her Holocaust experiences, not to forget. She never said she wanted to forget ever, but she wanted to think about something else as well. Rucky, uh, as moderator, I am going to ask Lynn now to say Lila Tove to our Facebook group, but not yet. I, I first want to say to everyone on Facebook and those of you who are live in Zoom, we'll stay after for uh, more time with Rucky. But Dr. Miller, you are such a articulate, elegant, authentic voice and witness for your mother, the witness. And in our prayer book, we read here on Shabbos, um, she, uh, I was once her dream and now she's mine. And so thank you for bringing your mom to life for us. I'm indebted to our mutual friend, Dr. Alan Malk for connecting us. And to everyone watching, um, thank you for remembering. That's the commandment on this Jewish commemorative night of Yom HaShoah. Good night, everyone.